Well, thanks for your welcome again here at Walton. It's always a, a privilege and a, a pleasure to just return. Uh, probably mention it most times I am here, but we were in fellowship with you for a, a number of years before moving over to Matlock. Can I, can I just give the greetings of the church in, in Matlock uh, to you uh, from Steep Turnpike? Uh, enjoyed singing that hymn. It was one that I didn't know, but I'm presuming it's one that's been revived by the Gettys. It was superb, wasn't it? The, the, the words certainly are, are a real help to us as we trust in a sovereign God. Noticed it was uh, Catherine Winkworth. I don't know, uh, I might be wrong on this, but I think she translated a lot of the old German hymns, if I remember correctly. And if you know anything about church history, uh, there was a, a movement in, on the continent uh, after the Protestant Reformation, after the fire had kind of died down slightly, uh, what we call pietism, and it, were, it was very much parallel to the Puritan movement in Britain, uh, and it just brought fresh life to the uh, continental churches, and really the bridge, I guess, between the reformers and the uh, evangelical awakening under the Methodists. So I'm always interested by history, by church history, uh, and I suspect that's the origin of that hymn, but as I say, I could be wrong. Well, before we turn to God's word, let's uh, just pray together before we uh, come to God's word. Father, we uh, read in your word that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Lord, as we come to your word this evening, uh, we believe that your word has a life-giving power to our souls. Uh, when applied by the Holy Spirit. Uh, we believe that your word uh, brings spiritual life. We believe that your word uh, sanctifies us and transforms us and changes us. And so, Lord, in our weakness this evening, as we turn to this passage together, we would pray uh, that you would help us to hear your word and not just to hear your word, but to act on your word uh, to believe your word, to take your word to heart. Uh, for we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was uh, interesting to see that you'd uh, turned in more recent work, uh, weeks back to Luke's Gospel because we are doing exactly the same at Matlock, although we're some way ahead of you. Last week we were, we were in uh, chapter 14, verse 25, which which describes for us really the, the, something of the cost of following the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there in verse 25, where Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Uh, and they're, of course, incredibly difficult words, aren't they? Challenging words uh, that impress upon us the truth that in order to follow Jesus, we need to be prepared to give up everything and put love for Christ first and foremost above all other things. Uh, it's a passage that confronts us really with the cost of commitment to Christ. You see, in the whole of human history, uh, and very often people misunderstand this, the Lord Jesus is probably the most divisive person whoever lived. His person, his claims on our lives demand a, a decision, don't they, on our lives. Will we bow to his kingship or will we 
reject him. And if you were to skim through Luke's gospel from the very beginning of Christ's ministry, back in chapter 4, you'll get an incredible sense of how divisive Jesus was. Uh, not just in the way that people turn in faith to him, but very often in the way that Christ is opposed and, and Christ is rejected. Right there at the commencement of his ministry, chapter 4, we see him, don't we, assaulted by Satan, uh, by the devil himself in the wilderness. In chapter 4, at the outset of his work, as he preached his first sermon in the synagogue in Nazareth, do you remember? We read that at first he was praised by everyone, chapter 4 verse 22 but then we read that by the end of that sermon it must have been some sermon there in verse 28 that everyone in the synagogue was enraged at Jesus and sought to kill him in chapter 5 he calls his first disciples doesn't he? he cleanses the leper he heals the paralytic and again the actions of Jesus they, they seem to polarize people don't they uh, in verse 26, we're told that the ordinary people were astounded and that they glorified God. And yet, in verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees accused Jesus of blasphemy. So really, the pattern for the life and ministry of Jesus is set as he performs miracles, as he teaches with incredible authority. People are distinctly divided, aren't they, in the way that they respond to his claims. So when we come to chapter 6, as Jesus walks through the cornfields, do you remember one day, one Sabbath with his disciples, casually picking at the odd ear of corn and chewing on that corn, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're watching Jesus. They're out to find fault with Jesus. They're out to catch Jesus, to find some excuse to condemn him. Chapter 6, verse 2. And then the preceding chapters uh, before chapter 10 here, the passage that we're in tonight, uh, are, are replete with this division that the person of Jesus brings. As very often it seems that the very people who should have received him reject him. And the very people who you would expect to reject him receive him. It's extraordinary, isn't it? So in chapter 7, the centurion a Gentile trusts in Christ. And Jesus says in response, I tell you, I've not found a greater faith even in the whole of Israel. Uh, and foremost, of course, among the antagonists of Jesus were the religious crowd, the Pharisees, the scribes, the very people who should have recognized who Christ was. But in their blindness, they simply refused to bow the knee to King Jesus. And the parable of the Good, Samarit uh, the Good Samaritan here, it, it's a profound example, really, of how the wise and the understanding of verse 21, did you just spot that verse, go back for a moment, the wise and understanding of verse 21, simply miss the good news of the gospel. So in chapter 7, 36 onwards, we, we have the account of that Pharisee called Simon, don't we? Invites Jesus into his home where a so-called woman of ill repute anoints the feet of Jesus with that costly perfume, much to the disgust of this thoroughly respectable Pharisee. So as a rule, then, we see that the main source of 
opposition, do you see, to Jesus comes from those who are religious, from the Pharisees, from the scribes, and the teachers of the law, which is really the context, if you go to the passage that was read to us, uh, in which Jesus teaches this parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, most people will be familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's one that's so well known, isn't it? It's a much-loved parable. But also, I, th I think it's a parable that I suspect is frequently misunderstood and misinterpreted uh, and often misapplied. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean this, if, if ever there was a peg in the Bible on which to hang salvation by works, it would be the parable of the Good Samaritan, wouldn't it? A social gospel. Then this is it, isn't it? It might seem on the surface to promote the message that if we want to get to heaven, then all we need to be is good people. If we want to be uh, classed as good by God, then all we need to be is good Samaritans. That's how people so often read the passage. You see, in one way, parables are, they're amazingly simple, aren't they? In the way that they illustrate a greater spiritual truth. But in other ways, they can be notoriously difficult, can't they, to interpret and apply. My brother-in-law's nodding his head there, so at least John agrees with me. They're difficult to interpret and apply. So in history past, uh, certainly in medieval times, and even right up to the Reformation, it was common to uh, interpret the parable in, in what we call allegorical terms, with every detail of the parable meaning something. So, for instance, the man attacked by the robbers here represents us. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is the fall of man in Adam. The robbers are Satan. The priest and the Levite are the law and the prophets. The Samaritan is Jesus. The inn is the church and the wine and the oil are the sacraments. But how are we to understand the parable of the Good Samaritan? Well, as in many other things, context is everything. Context is everything. So what's the context here behind this story that Jesus tells well, by way of introduction, we're told the context here in verse 25, aren't we? It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, Jesus had evidently been spending time with his disciples publicly and with others as well, speaking to them and teaching them, verses 1 to 24. When we're told that an expert in the law stands up with this question. Now, depending on your translation, this man might be identified as a teacher of the law, or, or if you have the ESV, it would be a lawyer. This man would have been an expert, in other words, in, in the Jewish law, the law of the Old Testament. If he wasn't a Pharisee, then at least he was a scribe. And he has this profound question to ask of Jesus. So what's that question? Well, it's possibly the, the most important question that anyone can ask in life. And we're told that it's this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, I think that's the first point I want us to notice from this passage this evening, that this man 
appears to ask a commendable question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's strange, isn't it, that as people, we, we, we give thought to things, don't we? We plan every part of our lives. As youngsters, we plan who we will marry. We meticulously come to some decision about where we will live. We think about whether we'll raise a family. We, we prepare and study for a career, don't we? We research how we'll invest for our retirement. We consider what we need to do in the next hour. We prepare for where we will be tomorrow. We dream about what things will be like perhaps next year. But how few of us ever think about eternity? Who gives thought to that thing which is the most inevitable part of our lives? Death itself. We seem to have this inbuilt reticence, don't we, into considering the reality of life to come. What that life will entail. How will we stand before the God who is our creator and our judge? Is there a heaven to gain? Is there a hell to escape? The old bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, said of this verse, he said, this is the question that should demand the attention of every man, woman, and child on earth. We are all sinners, dying sinners, and sinners who are going to be judged after death. So, so this man here, doesn't he, in, in Luke chapter 10, he asks that, question that every one of us should be asking. It's probably the most important question anyone can ever ask. How do we inherit eternal life? In one sense, I, I guess we could commend this guy, couldn't we, for asking this question. Yet, on a, on a closer examination of the account here, uh, we see, secondly, that he has a debatable motive, doesn't he, in asking this question. In other words, he asks a right question in the wrong way. You see, from the text, we see that this man was not sincere in his question. He had this hidden agenda, this questionable motive. Look there at verse 25. It says, on one occasion, an, ex an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. That's the giveaway, isn't it? Stood up to test Jesus. Evidently, he's out to trip Jesus up with the most important spiritual questions. And as you read on, this, on in this passage, can I suggest that there's something else at work here? There's another problem in this man's mind. The whole idea that we can merit God's favor somehow because of the things that we do. You see, you see, you see there's a whole host of difference between the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life and what must I do to inherit eternal life so it's a right question asked in a wrong way and can I suggest that this expert in the law would have been steeped wouldn't he it have been soaked steeped in that common view that is always a hindrance in coming to Christ with an attitude of faith. And that's that belief that we can somehow 
be made right with God by our own works. I think that assertion can be proved not just by the question that the man asks in verse 25, but also by the phrase that you read there in verse 20, 29, that here was a man who was not really interested at all in the answer that Jesus was going to give. But all along, this was a man who just wanted to justify himself. So what's Jesus going to say to this man? A man who apparently had no sense of his personal sin. No, no sense whatsoever of his inability to, his moral inability to please God. A man who thinks that he can be acceptable to God because he's good, because of his good works, because of his law keeping. How does Jesus answer this man? Well, intriguingly, Jesus put this, puts this man's law keeping to the test, doesn't he? With a question of his own. Jesus says to him, there in verse 26, he says to the man, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus answers, you have answered correctly. Do this. And you will live. Which I think brings me to my third point that I want us to see in this account. This man who asks what would have appear to be a commendable question on the surface that's shown in reality to be the right question asked in a wrong way that Jesus answers him by showing him an impossible standard to meet. It's interesting, isn't it? An impossible standard to meet. So in order to prove to this self-righteous expert in God's law that he cannot justify himself by law. He, he can't be made right with God by obedience and good works. Jesus sets this impossibly unattainable standard of love towards God and love towards our fellow man. He asks the lawyer to summarize the commandments, doesn't he? The answer comes back in verse 27. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, because the man poses a, uh, a question, that, that poses a question, was an expert in the Jewish law, it's significant, isn't it, that Jesus points him back to the law. Philip Ryken points out that Jesus deliberately answers the lawyer's question on his own terms. So he gives a legalistic answer to a legalistic question. You see, the standard that Jesus sets, that unattainable standard, is love of God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength, an utterly perfect and consistent whole-of-person response of love towards God. And then to love our fellow men as we love ourselves. We have to say, who in the world can do that? Who in the world can do that? The, to the, the totality of our emotions and our consciousness and our drive and our intelligence are committed to God. And that we are as committed in love to our neighbor as we are to ourselves. You see, I, I think it could be argued from 
the Bible in theory, at least, that the law of God offers salvation to anyone who can, can consistently meet its perfect demands. But the problem is that no one can. Not one of us other than the sinless Son of God. But just in passing verse 28, it's interesting. It says, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. And the most accurate translations there would be something like, keep on doing this and you will live. Jesus uses what we call a present tense verb, which according to one commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, has the connotation of ongoing, continuous, undeviating obedience. So Jesus is asserting that if we once go down that road of obedience to God's law, as a ground for our acceptance with God, then we'll find the law to be a terrible master, like a tyrant. A master who doesn't just demand, but demands complete perfection, constant perfection, a perfection that we can never live up to. So that's why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3.20, he says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You see, law, obedience, good work, they can't be the basis for our acceptance with God. Not because there's a problem with God's law, but because there's a problem with us. The problem of our sin. Some of you will be aware that on Friday morning, the Manhattan pastor and theologian Tim Keller died after a three-year battle with pancreatic cancer. And in a recording that I just listened to Tim Keller's two days ago when he died, where he was talking about the inability of us to be made right with God by our own effort, he quoted the words of the great preacher of history, Jonathan Edwards, who said these words. He said, Our good works have about as much chance of stopping us going to hell as the spider's web has of arresting the fall of a boulder. Well, I'll say that again. Our good works have about as much chance of stopping us going to hell as a spider's web as of arresting the fall of a boulder. And so it, it, it's here that Jesus must work hard with this man to show that he can't save himself. And the Holy Spirit must work hard with us to show us that we can't be saved by our own works. So this is the context then of the parable here, the Good Samaritan, the expert in the law, still wanting to justify himself, still basically holding to that attitude that he was okay, that he didn't need a saviour, that he could work his way to God. It's amazing. And so he goes on to ask, who is my neighbour? It's extraordinary, isn't it? He doesn't stop there. Who is my neighbour, he says to Jesus. He's trying to lessen the demands of God's law, you see. You see, for the Jew, the concept of neighbour was confined just to the nation of Israel. So, so it's important to realise that the parable of the Good Samaritan is given by Jesus in answer to the question, who is my neighbour? And not to the answer, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So by asking that question, who is my neighbour? The, the lawyer's 
he's seeking this way of minimum obedience, isn't he? He's seeking to lessen God's demands. But Jesus demands total obedience. The Jews consider their neighbors as those who are exclusively within the boundary of Israel, excluding everyone else. So in order to prove to this self-righteous expert in the law that he can't even qualify for heaven on the basis of his love for his neighbor, Jesus tells this amazing story about the Good Samaritan. A, a man, probably a devout Jew on his way, probably from the temple in Jerusalem along that dangerous road that descends from Jerusalem to Jericho. I traveled it many years ago. He's brutally attacked by bandits. He's beaten, he's robbed, and he's left half dead. And as he lies bleeding at the side of the roadside, the creme de la creme of the Jewish religious elite come one after another. First a priest, then a Levite. But for some unexplained reason in the passage, they choose not to show mercy to this wounded man but just to pass by on the opposite side of the road. Uh, and I guess for, the, for the, this lawyer, this teacher of the law, listening to Jesus, this must have been incredible. It must have been hoping beyond hope that the next traveller to pass by would be just an ordinary Jew, a, a decent, moral Jew, not overly religious Jew. But then Jesus delivers the knockout, doesn't he? The punch. The man who showed mercy was one of those filthy, rotten stinkers, the Samaritan, a member of the race that devout Jews hated the most. Samaritans had been sworn enemies of Jews for 500 years, ever since the Babylonian exile when Samaritans had intermarried with Assyria. And over time, you'll, you'll remember from the biblical accounts that the Samaritans had developed their separate religion, their own version of the Old Testament, even their own temple at Gerizim. Samaritans, well, they were a type of half-breed traitor who had collaborated with the enemy. They were, in the minds of the Jews, enemies and heretics. And the illustration that Jesus uses to show the religious Jew who his neighbor is, it wouldn't have been lost on this lawyer, would it? It wouldn't have been lost on him. Two different classes of the most respectable Jews, a priest and a Levite, both passed by this wounded man. But a despicable Samaritan had gone more than the second mile to show mercy. It's an astounding account, isn't it? So when Jesus asked the man, who then is your neighbor? In verse 36, the lawyer can't even bring himself to give an answer, can, can't even speak the word. Samaritan sticks in his throat. This was a despised race of people. It just stuck in his throat. Isn't even able to say clearly anything other than the man who showed mercy. But you see, isn't the, the lesson of Jesus here clear? That we're called to love the unlovely, aren't we? Every one of us. We're called to love the unlovely. So let me apply this a little. So who is my neighbor? Who is your neighbor? If we think that for one millisecond that we can be accepted by God on the basis of ourselves and, and our performance and our works and our goodness, 
and our obedience and our righteousness, then we, we condemn ourselves instantly. Because if we're honest, all of us, we simply don't love as we should, do we? We don't love as we should. We might find it relatively easy to love the lovable, but if we're honest, do we love the unlovable? Do we love everyone? What about the folks who are downright troublesome? Maybe a neighbour, maybe someone in the church. What about those who we just to be morally beyond the pale, someone who was in the news in the last week? What about those people who, well, basically, they just get on our wick a bit, don't they? Do we love them? The people who, you know, push our buttons. We all know people like this, don't we? Push our buttons. I wonder who you struggle with. Who's the neighbour that you need to love? Well, I wonder who it is for you. For me, it would obviously be someone like Vladimir Putin. He's someone I'd willingly donate a projectile to. Don't you think? While I'm confessing, someone who gets me really riled is that guy on the TV, Keith Lemon. Am I the only person who struggles? Why is it that every time that guy appears, I, I have this almost irresistible urge to take a flying kick at the TV? And what is it about Greta Thunberg that's so nauseating? <laughs> is it just me, or, or does that, all that self-righteous pontificating just ride your goat a bit? Well, we can laugh. But that's a glimpse into what my heart is like. The blackness of my heart, the sinfulness of my heart. And it's why I can't rely on my performance. Why I desperately need a saviour. So I wonder what your heart is like. You see, friends, the parable of the Good Samaritan is not good news it's not good news that was the title that i was given it's bad news because not only am i guilty of not being able to love the lord my god with all my heart mind soul and strength but i feel i fall woefully short of loving my neighbors myself dale ralph davis says these words again he says the story of the good samaritan is not to show us what we should do but to prove to us what we do not do. The Good Samaritan does not preach to us our duty, but reveals to us that we cannot and do not do our duty. So remember the context of the parable. It was given in response to that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the teaching of Jesus here is that we have been and we are, and we will continue to be law-breaking sinners. People who don't love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. And people who do not and cannot love our neighbours as ourselves. Let me draw to a finish this evening. I'll be 57 this year and I became a Christian when 
I was nine years old. So I've been converted, let me do the, the maths, I think it's 48 years. Uh, but for probably 18 of those years, uh, I have to confess to only understanding half of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, I always understood that my sins were forgiven because of the death of Christ. When he died, my sins were put to his account. And it was probably not until about 30 years ago that through really the reading of the Bible and perhaps a, a little book that I read by a man called John Murray uh, called Redemption Accomplished and Applied that I came to see that there was in fact another side to the good news. You see, when Christ died for me, he bore my sin and guilt in what we call his passive obedience. But in his perfect life for us, in what we call his active obedience, Jesus established a righteousness that can be put to my account when I come to him in faith. So in his passive obedience, in his death, Jesus paid the penalty for my inability to keep God's law. Our sin was put to Christ's account. But in his active obedience, in his sinless life, Jesus wins for us a righteousness that can be credited to us, imputed to us, put to our account when we come to him in faith. Because you see, Christ is the only one who has ever loved God with all his heart, mind, soul and strength and loved his fellow man perfectly. And, and I want to finish with this, friends. That is glorious, joyful news. It's liberating. I don't know whether you're acquainted or with the story of John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, but in his autobiography, there, there's this touching account of how he eventually came to just rest in the righteousness of Jesus. He'd been really struggling as a Christian with been certain of the fact that God had accepted him. But he wrote, One day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul, Your righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. There, I said, is my righteousness. So wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, Where is your righteousness? For it was always right before him. I saw that it is not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness is Christ. Now my chains fell off indeed, my temptations fled away, and I lived sweetly at peace with God. You see, Jesus fulfilled the law of God perfectly, and Jesus fulfilled the law of God consistently only he loved God his father with all his heart and mind and soul and strength and loved his neighbours himself and that means that faulty failing sinful people like me and you who can't attain to God's standard who will never be able to be justified and made right with God through obedience it means that we're people whose acceptance rests in the righteousness of someone else, in the righteousness of Jesus. So we can see, can't we, before the throne of God above, I have a stronger, perfectly great high priest whose name 
is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless Savior died. My guilty soul is counted free and God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Great, isn't it? That's the gospel. And that's what we see here in the Good Samaritan. I'm going to hand back to Michael. Thanks, Michael, for leading. And uh, we'll sing a, a closing hymn and pray. Thanks, Michael.